I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. This show is an exploration of deals in the private markets. Through conversations with private equity managers, we'll dive into individual deals to learn about deal dynamics, companies, and ownership that make private equity a force in institutional portfolios and the global economy. You can keep up to date and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of Capital Allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of Capital Allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's private equity deals, Kevin Callahan and Larry Hamelski discuss Partstown. Kevin and Larry are managing directors and longtime team members at Berkshire Partners, 35-year-old private equity firm managing over $20 billion in middle market deals and public equity. Kevin is a member of the industrials and consumer teams, and Larry is a member of the industrials and communications teams at Berkshire. Partstown is a distributor of OEM repair and maintenance parts for the food service industry. The tech-enabled company provides 150,000 different aftermarket replacement parts to manufacturers of commercial kitchen appliances. Berkshire bought the business from Summit Partners in 2016 and transitioned ownership to a different Berkshire fund, continuation fund, and outside sponsor in 2021. We discuss the business, finding and landing the deal, working with management, conducting tuck-in acquisitions, and recapping the business for another chapter of growth. Please enjoy my conversation with Kevin Callahan and Larry Hamelski. Kevin, Larry, thanks for joining me. Morning, Ted. Thank you. Well, we're going to jump into Partstown, but first, why don't you give a little overview of Berkshire? Sure. We were founded in uh, 1987. We uh, operate in the middle market private equity space. We're proud of, on two fronts, good results for our investors and helping build some really great companies. The two go hand in hand, honestly. I think along the way, we've become really distinctive in our industry for having a great culture of how we work internally at Berkshire. We have a very stable team that's been together for a long time. Larry and I have worked together for 28 years now, Larry. We're both still exceptionally youthful, of course. (laughs) We also have, early on the firm, had the notion that if we can make the companies better during our chapter of ownership, it would breed two things. One, great results, but it also give us a reputation for being a really responsible investor. And so we've got 35 people on our team today who are completely dedicated to how well the companies do and what they do with a lot of functional leadership to make them better during our time of engagement. Second thing is we've developed over time an appreciation that relationships really matter. And done right, they can be the gift that keeps on giving. Larry, let me just ask you those two threads of culture and relationships. How do you describe what that is for Berkshire? It's just everyone you meet from Berkshire is so committed to being here. As Kevin said, we've got such longevity We're our own single largest investor. So we're a firm that is so committed to succeeding together, which is why I love working here. It's a place that if you care about it's your deal and you're focused on how you do, it's not a place for you. Like it's a place where we win as a group, we win as a team, we move around on different projects to help each other out. And so it's an environment that we've all been here for a really long time. (laughs) We like each other. And I think it shows up when we meet management teams. When we meet a team, we come with a deep team. You know, we come with a senior team. We're really well prepared. We're in it to try to understand what they do. We don't tell people what they should be doing. We kind of discuss it together. I think a fact that's interesting is when we invest in a company, about three quarters of the time, whoever that seller is rolls into our deal. Like people are committed to be part of our next chapter. And so it's one where we think about it as a, an investor in a chapter of a company, but those chapters end up lasting a long time and the relationships last multiple chapters. They're investors in our funds, they're on our boards, it lasts a long time. 
There's two other specific things that punctuating the team aspect of what Larry said. One is that from the outset, no individual has had a corner office at Berkshire. Now we, we have a lot of corner offices here. They're all occupied by conference rooms. It's the team is the most important person or entity in the in the firm and how we think of it. The firm is 100% owned by its active employees. So we have no outside owners or residual owners. We've done a very good job of having succession transfer very easily and calmly over the years. And the other aspect is that we're all aligned with how the fund overall does. There's no such thing, as Larry said, of my deal or having disproportionate economics directed toward the things you work on. We all are tied to how well the fund overall does. And it keeps us thinking pretty clearly about what we want to do and why, and keeps us thinking about what's best for the firm and for the funds and our investors. So before we dive into Partstown, I'm kind of curious, in all of the companies that you own, you have this culture, this value system that's worked really well for Berkshire. To what extent do you instill that into your portfolio companies? I think we do that with great trepidation, honestly. <laughs> we have an unusual culture that works for us. There are a bunch of other successful cultures in the investment world that are unique to others and work for them. And what we appreciate most is that a company has a culture, which is a great bond and is maybe correlated with their success. We don't really care exactly what that culture is. Some of them are much more individual, profit center. It's not the same team atmosphere we have, but they have one and it works for them and it's appropriate for their industry. So I think that's how we think of it. We try not to impose our own on anybody else. I mean, it may show up in like board meetings, maybe, because we're a group that debates the facts and we don't come in with a preconceived view and we kick it around. We don't care like who's right. It's sort of as a group, do we come up with it? So if a company has a different culture, maybe they take that away from how we behave in that setting. But I agree with you that we're not trying to find companies that look just like us. Great. Well, let's talk Partstown. What is this business? Well, Partstown is a tech-enabled distribution company. They have revamped the way that restaurants order replacement parts. And so if you're a McDonald's or a Chick-fil-A, you have a fryer that breaks, you need a part. And it's really critical to get that machine back up and running. And so Partstown is where you would go to understand what part you need to get it quickly and so largely their business is distributing those parts, and they've done it in an e-commerce way where the industry hadn't been there before. They also are one of the largest service tech repair companies as well. And so they own the largest network of that as well. So these parts, part for a fryer, what are we talking about here? Could be everything from a basket to a temperature control to something that breaks regularly. And it's really anything that's in an institutional kitchen. So they're generally small parts. Just to back up, we've appreciated that distribution businesses that are lined up in a, what we call a many-to-many -many structure have some real capabilities that done right can develop a virtuous circle of how those companies will grow. And Partstown's exemplary on this front. They have a real value they add to the manufacturers of these parts. Most of these parts are made or are produced by people who make large equipment. They make the large fryer or the range or the refrigeration or ice equipment or whatever. But the parts are a bit of an afterthought. They have to provide them, but it's not core to their business. And so Partstown's been able to, in many cases, get master distribution agreements with those OEMs and basically take that parts inventory and that service obligation off of their hands. It's a win-win completely for them. With that inventory then, we go to the everyone from individual restaurant owners up to chains like McDonald's and Subway and offer them the best inventory of parts with same-day shipping, awesome information in the online e-commerce site that we have and service that's really unmatched. And so we, it keeps working and it keeps driving people to work with Partstown because customers are so happy from all of that. And so the parts, they break with some regularity, but there are a lot of them. We have over 150,000 separate parts in our inventory. Uh, it's very hard for others to replicate that. So Larry, you mentioned that Partstown is online and the industry hadn't been. I'd love to hear a little bit about it, the history of Partstown. When did it get created and when did that transformation happen? So it started in the 2002, three? We all think of it as 2002. <laughs> Actually, I looked at this recently. <laughs> okay. 1987 was original founding, but it didn't do much for the first 15 years <laughs> until Steve showed up. 
So, you know, it was a few million dollar company when the CEO, Steve Snower, showed up and he was friendly with the family and the owner of it. And it was this small startup and the competition had catalogs that had part after part after part. And if you think about a technician that goes in to fix restaurant equipment, they may not know exactly what part they need. It's not totally obvious. And so Steve's vision was, how do I put all of that information online, forget catalogs, and how do I do it in a way that educates the repair technician on what they need and why they need it? So that's kind of how it started. It was so small, and they just kind of kept adding. They then, as Kevin said, convinced some of these OEMs to outsource some of their parts distribution to them. They started winning chains on the other side, and it kind of took off from there. And then if you keep going, they had sequential month-over-month growth for up until the pandemic. It was close to 20 years of month-over-month growth. It's like 198 months. Wow. So you mentioned it was family-owned when Steve came in. What was the ownership of the business before you got involved? Reedy Industries or Reedy Family, Bill Reedy, um, who's still on our board, by the way, a terrific individual, had owned the business and brought Steve in very wisely in 2002. And until 2014 or 13, the business had been owned by the family. Summit Partners became an investor in that year and saw some of the same things we did shortly thereafter and did the first sort of recap with it and uh, helped bring in some capital and some additional insights to help them grow. Were you competing with Summit for that deal at the time? We kind of came later. I would say we kind of fell into it. And something we try to do is that we, when we diligence a company, if we don't invest in the company, we try to take those learnings and and see if we can do anything else with it. So we stumbled upon a distribution company that was distributing the equipment itself, not the parts, but the restaurant equipment. And we studied that and we came to the view that While it was interesting and it was fragmented, it was highly cyclical. And so sort of learned in different downturns, it dropped anywhere from 40 to 50%. But a little nugget of that work was that the parts business actually wasn't cyclical. Because if you think about it, in a downturn, you may build fewer restaurants, but you're going to use your existing equipment a lot more, which means things are going to break a lot more. So we kind of stumbled on that, and then we diligenced a company that largely distributed generic parts, so knockoff parts. And we actually liked that. We kind of worked hard at it. We sort of underwrote a lower growth rate, and we bid for that company and ended up not winning that bid. But all the work we did on the customers and that industry, like all this net promoter score work we did, Partstown spiked as the company that you'd really want to invest in. We networked to Summit. We spent a lot of time with Steve. We didn't know that there would be an opportunity. Summit was looking at an add-on acquisition. They didn't want to add additional capital themselves. And so we were alongside of them on that. And it's interesting because they didn't end up doing that deal. If they did that deal, I'm not sure we would have invested a little bit in Partstown, but ended up not doing that deal. And then the relationship we developed with Steve, he came to us and said, Someone's going to do something in six months. If you could kind of jump in early, I'd love to do something with you ahead of that. And that's how we landed that. But from a process perspective, there's always this view in private equity that you could do a ton of work on a company or an industry and then have nothing happen. And a lot of times you'd hear, oh, that's why someone earlier in their career switched to public equity because it was much more actionable. How often does this happen where you've done the steep dive, you looked at a deal, you didn't get it, oh, you found Partstown's a company you want to own, oh, by the way, Summit already owns it, so you just sort of get to know the CEO, like that process? I think if you go back over our history, you would see a bit of a family tree of what led to what and what knowledge of in a process led to a certain deal. There are a lot of dry holes. There's no question about it. But if you're really focused on areas that are interesting, and we've typically thought that serving, I mean, in a broad lens, serving the out-of-home uh, food market was really attractive, right? 
still a good trend for that. New players, takeout, delivery, lots of reasons why Americans will want to consume food out at home. That's attractive. We've been in that in food supply in that area for a long time. We also think that serving large customers like McDonald's is very attractive. We've had food suppliers to McDonald's. We think that aftermarket parts is pretty attractive for the reasons Larry noted of avoiding cyclicality and providing something that's a very sustainable, durable business. And so those threads of big picture knowledge punctuated by these specific diligences or prior investment experiences lead to the next thing. I would say it's probably true for half or three quarters of the situations we've been in that we can look at a direct ancestors of either processes we jumped into and learned something from or prior portfolio experience that sort of gave us conviction that this new opportunity has this combination of growth and sustainability, as we call it, that is attractive to us from a portfolio construction standpoint. It makes you a better buyer, right? Because you if you see a couple things, you then know what you're looking for. But you're right. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to diligence a company, liking it, and then coming in second or third. or Because you take a month of your life and you're like working nonstop. You're trying to buy it. You lose, so it doesn't feel great. And we just try to push ourselves. We give ourselves what would you say? <laughs> a weekend? Or we give ourselves a couple of days and then we're like, let's sit down with this. We're like, what can we come out of it? But when Partstown came around and we had looked at all elements of that industry and a competitor, we were sharp on what we were looking for. We could act quickly. We knew the questions to ask. We were credible. Just it makes you a much better buyer. So Steve comes to you and says, there's a process about to start. It was Steve and Summit together, really, That's uh, how it was. But it was de- they were aligned on it, and they wanted to give us that opportunity. Yeah. And so what'd you do with that? I remember we jumped at it. <laughs> and the nice thing is, normally in a process, you, you might get a couple meetings with management, and you're trying to assess their capabilities. Here, we looked at an add-on acquisition closely. So we had a long window into how they operate, how they perform, how they think. I do remember that... Summit was going to sell this company in six months. They said, here's the price we're going to get in six months, and we want you to pay that now. And I remember it felt very high at the time. What was that high price at the time? It was like 15 plus times, 15 times, something like that. And I remember your comment, Kevin, was, you know, you're like, we're not smart enough to be able to predict within six months if we're paying the right price or like, it's a really good company as we talked about, it had this track record of, it had a 20% growth every year for 15 years, innovative, we can get to their special culture. But so I remember that you were like, we can't be so precise on sort of what this was. And so that was a good decision. I I think that's been born out of experience, right? You know, the number of times we've, in a long hold private equity business, the entry price is far less important than the goodness of the asset that you've bought. And it's very easy to look back and say, wow, an extra 10% or whatever wouldn't have mattered if you found the right company. So there was that, certainly that pattern recognition there. And there was a lot of familiarity both at the industry and with the company. Larry and I are just two of our several partners here. We had to convince our team that our enthusiasm was was warranted. And so our team pushed us really hard to make sure that we were, that the company was really as good as our instincts were suggesting. So once you've convinced your internal investment committee to do this, we're here in Boston, Summit's in Boston, you're friends with them. What's that deal dynamic like? It was honestly so straightforward. We've made investments with Summit before. We've been on boards with them before. We, we know each other's families. It's a very a big city and a small town. There's a lot of trust and mutual respect there. We were going to meet their number, which was a high number relative to what the business's current earnings were, but they were going to roll over and be a meaningful investor and remain on the board too. So for us, as is true, as I mentioned on this relationships mattering element of our firm, we look at everything as a, we want to keep working with them. We want to show them something that could be interesting to us, work together with them in the future. So it's all about making sure that in a given situation, you're approaching in a true partnership fashion. Jay Polly uh, remained on the board, terrific director. They're super supportive of all the things that Partstown did over the next many years. Though we compete, we obviously collaborate too. You mentioned you'd looked at this, this tuck-in with Steve. What do you think it was about your relationship with him, your understanding of the space that led them to come to you to preempt this process compared to other people who may have been involved in the space? We had proactively reached out to Steve, really with, I think, a Summit introduction. This was kind of prior to Summit exploring 
making an add-on acquisition. So we had developed this relationship. We shared some of our insights on the space. And I guess we've learned over time that these processes can be short. So if you meet management early and you have a relationship, you just learn things along the way. You know, like they set a budget. Do they usually beat their budget? Do they set a conservative budget? And so it helps you if you ever are in a process and you're in the 11th hour and you're trying to figure out, do I stretch that last little bit or not? You've got some continuity with that team and you know how they operate. So we probably had pitched Steve on a number of things that over time they could buy. And so when this came up, we were, I think, a natural call. I don't, there were other people that competed with Summit on that deal originally, and they'd stayed in touch with Steve over the years, but I don't think the same way that we did. The other thing that I think became apparent was that Partstown is very much a values-based culture. And Steve has, with his team, articulated six now core values of safety, integrity, community, passion, love that one, courage, love that one, and innovation. And they do everything by those values, right? It's how they set their strategy. It's how they hire a team. What's interesting is we've, as a private equity firm, have had our own values over time um, that we've articulated. And, and we were relatively early to do that. What we found over time was that it helped us articulate the glue that keeps us all together in this in this bond we have at Berkshire. It also resonates really well with companies that have gone through that process of articulating their values and culture. And so for a number of these companies we've met over the years, there's this connection which is formed at a little different level than about the numbers. And so I think that Steve felt like there was a real kinship on that front. We had the foundations to be a really good partner for the company. So beyond price, I'm kind of curious where the bargaining power stood. So Steve clearly was interested in doing something with you, but Summit's saying, hey, we're going to a process. You can meet our price. What about all the other terms that go into a deal? Steve is a really good partner to Summit and also is a good future partner to us. He was trying to balance uh, what's a fair deal, a good deal for Summit, and but he was also a buyer too. You know, that whole team was investing and had a new option plan. And this was probably the first liquidity event for that team. We made the decision to hit their price. It was an aggressive price, but it wasn't, you know, it was fair too. We were able to structure a deal in a way that was quick. In this market where you've got to be nimble and you've got to you just have to be careful. And so we treated this process as if we were in a process. Like we didn't try to play games. We didn't try to like extract value. We appreciated that we had a one-off look and we treated it with the speed and certainty that we would with anything. Right. And given the goodness of the company and how clean it is in diligence and that it had been a private equity backed business before with an institutional lending group, good history of numbers and hitting numbers, et cetera, and that management and Summit were going to continue to be an investor. There was a lot of comfort there we got. So on things like legal and terms, what kind of purchase protection should the contract have? We looked at that. There were a lot of issues that just sort of fell off the table for us. And we just met the the market on that for a good company with these kind of characteristics. So we didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about what else we had. The management deal felt very fair to us. It felt like they were making a major commitment of their existing dollars, but also there was, we offered a new option package, of course, you know, that was uh, time and performance driven as we typically would. The things, the conversation we had with Steve is how deep should that go? And who are the people you're trying to reach? And how much do we leave for new joiners? And that was the conversation we had up front, but all this was really done in discussion way. It was, it never felt at all to us like a negotiation where there was give and take, honestly, it felt just arriving at the right answer together. I will say that you want to be in this position, right? You want a proprietary look at something before it goes into a process. I would say if you looked over our history, the opportunities we've, I'd say we're one out of 10 in wanting to do that deal when we have these looks. And it it only works when the company is as good as Partstown. It only works when the information checks out because we're getting that look before They've really, they haven't hired a bank often. They haven't put together their materials in a super thoughtful way. They have the benefit when they go through a process of really fine-tuning their story, and we get them before that. And so often it, it doesn't hang together, and it has to fully hang together for us to want to do it. And 
This is one of the few times that it that it did. <laughs> one of the things we both learned, or I certainly learned early in my career, was don't fall in love with the process alone. Because in the end, it's not the process that matters. It's the company, the goodness of the company you invest in. The investment record isn't based on how you found it. It's the goodness of what you invested in. When a company's been performing as well as Partstown had before you bought it, how do you think about what value you're going to add in this next chapter? So when we do our work, one, we're trying to assess the history of the company and why it's achieved the way it has. And then we are, I would say, you know, we're looking for companies that we think have a number of ways to grow and win. And I guess we've learned over time that we can't count on all of them going right. Like if, if we have a situation where too many things have to go right, it usually doesn't work out the way that we hope it does. And so with this one, there were a number of levers that we thought could add real growth. And it had to do with increasing the distribution agreements that it had. There was an M&A angle to it. There was an international angle to it. There was a lot of internal work in terms of systems and things that needed to be upgraded over time. And then there was like, how do we help them build a M&A muscle? How do we help them get into new adjacencies? So I think we got excited about this because we saw the core growth itself was would have led to a good outcome. And if we could have pulled on a couple of the different levers, we'd have a great outcome. And so our team, we had a full-time portfolio support person almost day one. We've been an investor now for six and a half years. He's probably spent, what would you say, more than half his time on this over that time. And then pulled in other functional experts when needed. And then, yeah, we've had advisory directors join the board. We've had a bunch of different specialists kind of chip in along. I mean, we've had a lot of there are a lot of hands that have touched this. And I'd say Partstown is a company that some companies want more or less of us. Partstown has wanted more of us. I think that a great role for private equity when you step back from it, Ted, is finding a company that will benefit from some real deep engagement that someone can devote in, over a many-year period and, and resources that would be hard for them to find on their own. One of the things that we like about the middle market is that these are companies that really do need help. They're not perfect yet. There's some key things they have yet to do. They haven't built out a complete team, maybe. Their systems are still, as Larry said, you know, 10 years old and are not thinking about being triple the size they are, and on and on. And so that's what we get really excited about is there's this chance to really bring something to them that they need and make it a better company over time such that the growth is even more assured. And we've, we've built a scale leader, helped scale a business such that it has the chance to be a billion-dollar player in a space. And Partstown certainly is a great example of that. It also gives us the chance, we think, to, we've had some some companies we've been investors in for many years. Advanced drainage systems is a business. One of the first things I happened to work on <laughs> yeah. back in 1988, I think it was, which we've been investors in for, I think, 30 of the past 35 years in private or public fashion, right? It is truly a great business for a bunch of reasons. And it's had some ability to get better, we, we hope, during our chapters with it. So what we love to find is a company that, not unlike our namesake, that Omaha fellow, Berkshire likes to find businesses that potentially we could hold forever. Yeah. So let's walk through some of those levers with Partstown and how they played out over those six and a half years. So I think if you looked at our growth from like an earnings standpoint, I think we've grown eightfold maybe something like that over the six and a half years. For the first four years, probably it was equal organic and M&A. I'd say it's probably now more like 60% M&A and 40% organic. So the M&A engine, they have a strong muscle in that. And I think we've added a lot of value on that. We've had our team kind of plugged in with their team. And we see a lot of companies, not a lot integrate the way that Partstown does. Like they fully integrated into their system, into their warehouse. I mean, they go all the way through and they've done a very good job with that. So in that space, we've done some M&A in our core. We've added on kind of the service tech side and have grown geographically. We've entered into some new adjacencies. We've entered into the home appliance space and that's grown nicely for us. There's a couple other adjacencies that we're looking at. So from that standpoint, they've been a very good acquirer. And I think our batting average is, if it's not 100%, it's close to it. It's very good, yeah. We've talked a little bit about culture, but their culture, and Kevin highlighted as one of their sick, you know, the innovation side is critical. So 
their mandate is to have like two breakthrough innovations per year. And sometimes it can be more than that, sometimes maybe even less, but they're always pushing for that. And so the nice thing about being a private company the way we are is we care how the company does, but we're not focused on quarter to quarter. We're willing to overinvest in certain years if we think it's going to lead to outsized and later years. And so if you look at how they've driven their organic growth, they'll come to us with, here's a list of things we're considering. And <laughs> I think they want us to kind of pick and choose. And often we're saying, yes, if earnings are $2 million less this year than what you thought, that's okay. And that's worked out. And so when you look at their history, 198 months of consecutive month-over-month growth, and then in the pandemic, the first month, Steve called both of us and was like in a panic. He's like, I've broken this streak. I remember you said, you're in the Hall of Fame, Steve. You're just, you might have an asterisk next to your day. But you're, and that month, that March, the first month in pandemic, I think it was down 50%. And interestingly enough, our earnings were flat in that month. And then ever since, they have been back on a tear. You guys are professionals at buying companies. And I'm curious, when you start to help them develop their M&A muscle, what does that look like in terms of a company's own ability to do acquisitions without your assistance? Well, from a buying and analytical standpoint, it really, for us in, in this particular investment, certainly has meant figuring out who are the key players on each side and devoting a lot of our own resources to them. And on the larger opportunities, we're just given their size and the process and financing issues, et cetera, we're really leading those. They have a large number of smaller tuck-ins that they've been able to do, particularly on the service tech side, and occasionally some of the small distributor side where they were able to, given their size and familiarity with it, strike a good deal with it with some oversight from us. But they really know what they like, and they really know how to get after it. We, over time, will probably build more at-the-company kind of ability to do those. And then any of the large ones we'll be wading into. And then very importantly, the integration side, what you do afterwards, they really are owning most of that with some guidance from our portfolio support individual who's very engaged on tracking how well things are doing. So on the major deals, it's really important to get those off to the right start and to achieve the marketing or cost synergies that you expect to do. And so on that one, we're going to be just a completely symbiotic team and tracking it because we don't want things to go off the original plan. I would say we... We've learned a lot together over time because they don't have the same lens that we have. So they might like a deal and we may say it's got a lot of customer concentration. You know, it might not be a good standalone private equity deal, but their lens might be it's got really great technology. It gives us, you know, we have significant synergies. It gets us into this customer. Some great people. Some great people. And so, and we may like it because it's, it might be accretive or different. And they may be like, well, it doesn't fit our culture. It doesn't. So we've learned together on what we may like, they may not like, and the other way around. And so I'd say as many deals as we've done, we've turned down more together. What have you found in the pricing environment for these different tuck-in acquisitions? A lot of it depends on the size. We're always <laughs> paying more than, than we think it's worth. Or, <laughs> you know, everyone's always like, we want this. And we're always like, you know, if you sold that in the market, you wouldn't get that. But yet, usually we're bringing a lot of savings to it, Partstown is. And so if you looked at a lot of them, we're probably paying more than the market clearing price to the, to the seller. But when you look at it from what Partstown's paying, it's less than the market clearing price. So it works out well because they feel like they're well compensated. And we're stretching a little bit, but it's still a good acquisition for us. I might say also that in some of these acquisitions we've done, Partstown's a well-known player in the industry and well-respected. And the management teams and occasionally the private equity owners have raised their hand and said, let us roll into Partstown. We want to join you. So yes, they want a full price for their business, but they're also eager to be a chance to be an investor. So our European management teams have become investors directly into Partstown. One large US acquisition we did, the private equity firm became an investor into Partstown. These are businesses that, one of the things I uh, that's interesting to know, Ted, because of the familiarity in the industry, our information on the Partstown website, the e-commerce site is so good that competitors use it to help them figure out what's the right part to ship to their customers, right? So we've seen over time where the hits coming from. They're often coming from the neighborhoods where our competitors 
offices are, right? <laughs> because we have the best information in the industry. And so they're very well familiar with that we're going to be a tough business given all that to compete with. And so they're sort of happy to join the family. One of the pieces of that information, just back to the, the innovation story, is that part spin is one of the major ones that we point to. And everyone, every consumer who's been on any consumer website knows that you've got the ability to manipulate and zoom in on, a, on an article of clothing, a shoe, whatever you're thinking about buying, and, and maybe spin it around and manipulate it. Partstone realized that that would be great for their industry too, to make sure people knew they were getting the part that they wanted that matched the one that was maybe in their hand broken. So we, with a major investment, we set up a studio in the distribution center to photograph every one of our SKUs from different angles and put it up online so that individuals who are thinking about making sure it's the right part would have the chance to zoom in and identify that part and match it up with what So when you have. say every one, that's 150,000? 150,000 SKUs. Now, don't hold me to maybe there's some news we have this week that we haven't photographed yet, but, but that's been the goal really is to have truly the best information in the industry to help customers. But Kevin, what are some of the other innovations that have come up on the wish list that you said yes to? Marketplace is very interesting, which they've have seeded and has been growing nicely. And basically the idea there is that inventory is also in the hands of our service tech customers at various locales around the US. And if there's the possibility, therefore, that you could have service within hours in terms of a part coming to you because it might be very close to where it's needed. And so providing a virtual marketplace of information to permit that particular entity might be a customer of ours to sell that inventory to that customer. That's a real value. So that's a new, a relatively new effort for us. And it's really interesting in its growth possibilities. Several years ago, the idea of mobile ordering and mobile interface with our e-com site was a novelty. It's now omnipresent for everybody, but but that was an innovation we've, we've pushed earlier in our industry than most industrial players had. So it gave a lot of flexibility to customers to order something on their phone versus having to be at their desktop. And even get all the information on there with an app. I mean, they were just early on every phase. It makes us really think about this whole notion of Berkshire has, over the years, invested in traditional well-positioned industries. There's this tech enablement layer across so many of them right now that we've seen time and time again be the key to success going forward, right? And so when we find something that's pretty good, and I'll call it the molecule world and have a chance to sort of move it into a digitized competitor, it's really interesting to us and something we're pursuing across all of our sectors. So you mentioned before that typically in a deal, not every lever you're hoping will work does. And I'm curious to hear a little bit of some of the challenges you may have faced along the way. Clearly the pandemic, when we talked about Partstown, our work suggested it was acyclical. <laughs> we, never, we, we never envisioned no one would be going out to eat for a period of time. So I guess it's not pandemic proof. And so that in and of itself was a challenge and the company hunkered down. And I think they learned a lot about, you know, as you're growing 20% a year, it's, you don't really examine every little bit of your company. And so that gave it a window to do that. We could have done some of those acquisitions sooner and we were disciplined and then we ended up doing them later and paying a lot more for them. And maybe that was the right thing to do for the business at the time, but we could have done that a little bit differently. I would say that on the systems and some of those things, we've been a little slower to move on, on that and have kind of could have been a little more forward thinking on that. I, the levers have worked out nicely. And I made that comment in a We've learned the hard way that if too many things have to go right to get a decent return, it just doesn't work that way. This one, a lot has gone right. So everything's going right. You come to last year and you have a recap. How do you think about the continued ownership of just a business that's doing great or changing something up like you did? The, I guess one thing maybe to start with, because we haven't really talked a lot about Steve, somewhat of a founder, but now has been a CEO for a long time and continues to evolve and add talent. And he's been a wonderful partner. And what happens often in these private equity chapters is management teams, they like a three or five-year chapter. They you know, have a good outcome. They get some liquidity. They might diversify, reinvest. And so teams can get accustomed to having something happen every so often. And so we were five and a half years into our chapter. It had been a very successful chapter. 
but we kind of both looked at each other and said, this chapter is too early to end. And yet, if you think about from a management standpoint, having some liquidity and they just went through a pandemic where they'd create a lot of value and then were worried what happened with that value. So it, it made sense from our standpoint to have another chapter. And so we had a lot of conviction in what was happening. It was in an older fund. And so that's when we explored this idea of how do we have an event where management can participate, but then be fully invested for the next event. And from a Berkshire standpoint, how do we position this in a fund for a whole new chapter? And so th that's how the conversation started. That's right. The conviction that this was a business we would like to continue to own, that management needed some kind of a payday and our older funds would benefit from some liquidity. We ran a process and the company met some of these folks along the way, certainly, and met a number of others, all great firms. And I'd say to a one, I think they appreciated the merits of Partstown as much as, as much as we did. And there was good competition for it, if you will. And management, Steve and others, you know, cared a lot about who their, who their partner was. As we began to narrow that list down, price became a consideration, certainly. We were rebounding strongly from pandemics. There was a little bit of a look forward, not unlike how we found ourselves in it. We were asking somebody to say, imagine what this business is going to be earning in a few months, given the rebound that's underway. We had some meaningful M&A yet to do. We had not closed. We had not begun diligence on, really, our European business that we've ended up buying. So there were some meaningful things to, yet to be done, but it came together nicely. And you know, along the way, because of the conviction we had as a firm, we said, this is something we would like our new fund, current fund to be an investor in. We looked at it across the things we're looking at and said, this is as attractive as any of the other opportunities we're seeing and develop some solution though for the older funds. So that was our, those were our goals. We had yeah. some old investors that were thinking of selling, some new investors that wanted to participate. And, and so it needed to be fair, but in this market, that meant it was, it traded for what it should. So internally at Berkshire, there are all these machinations of how do you hold a great asset for longer? So you have one fund selling, you have another fund buying, you have a continuation fund you create. How did you think about the conflicts and resolve all of that in continuing to own this asset? Sure. Great question. And something we've grappled with very successfully several times before. And there are a number of principles, I guess, that we sort of rest on in, in those situations. One is really thinking of our investors in each fund and making sure that we're involving those advisory boards in the decision-making and blessing the decision that we have and having it be really pressure-tested in advance of that saying, is this fair to each of the various funds in mind? We have principles of re-diligencing a business, right? So we really didn't say, let's just think about just because it's been successful, let's just sort of assume it's going to keep going. We actually involved some new thinking, had a new investment committee process to do that, new team members, and also people who had not yet been individual investors here at Berkshire thinking about it saying, gee, they're looking at it purely as a new investor. Do they want their own capital in it, right? So there were a number of elements of that that we've navigated before and navigated here in this way. And there's, you know, fundamentally, you know, we have a lot of carryover between our funds from investor to investor. So people understood that. They understood we had several of these high conviction assets we've had over time and we've gotten them right, fortunately. And so I think there was, from our investor base, a really good understanding for how careful we are in navigating all of what you've just talked about, Ted. And then how do you think about sizing of a new fund? And I know you had a continuation fund as well across those two vehicles for your level of participation going forward. We've learned over time to be careful about how big any one investment is in a new fund, that we invest a fund over a period of time. So we have diversification. So we treated this as a full position in a new fund, given the conviction level. And we've got a couple of those sizes in this fund. And that felt like the right, at least from a new fund standpoint, the commitment we should make. And now when you're owning it in a new fund, it's a recap. How do you think about the game plan going forward for the business? We treat it as a new deal. And we have some different partners around the table, but we, on every deal we do, we try to package the diligence that we do and share that with management. And Often we give them a couple week breather after a process or something. 
But we meet with them and we go over what's our game plan for the next handful of years. And again, we're often management has a lot of initiatives. And so we're trying to help prioritize them. And if that means we overinvest in the early years, that's just fine. So it was the same process. It's a new chapter with a new five-year game plan. We had our first board meeting with the management team, with Leonard Green Partners and Rourke, who were the new investors in the business, each of whom brought really relevant experience to a situation like this, and asked them to share their learnings from a diligence standpoint of what they liked and what they, what their concerns were. And so it was in this way of being really open about it, it was uh, helpful for our management team to hear those concerns. I would say that this is a management team, though, that is not complacent. They're in the Andy, Andy Grove paranoia camp of <laughs> yeah. always expecting that something is going to go wrong and change in an industry, and are really balanced thinkers about the while proud of what they've built, they know they need to keep improving. And so that dialogue of what are our common goals over the next five years among all the investors and the management team was really truth-seeking and honest and, and really helped shape some of our view. What do you see as some of the biggest risks to the business going forward? We have a lot of conviction in the growth of where it's going. It's a big entity now. And so to generate the kind of returns that we hope to generate, it needs a lot of growth. It's got to be positioned well at the end to be sold well. So the execution of it, it's amped up a lot. You know, when we bought it and it was small, a few things could move the needle. We're now at a size where we need bigger needle movers. And so the size of M&A that we need to do or the pace of some of the adjacencies, it's just kind of sped up a little bit, I'd say, what we need to do. How does this business interact with Amazon? Amazon is a uh, obviously an important player in virtually every industry these days. They're certainly a competitor on some level. They do stock some of the same parts that Partstown does. It's a much smaller SKU selection with much less good information on the product and no real ability to offer that service insight or be able to pick up a phone and call somebody to make sure the specific application you're trying to solve is available. So we think that Partstown is well positioned in one of these distribution niches to be, because of the value we provide, to be in a good spot. And yet nobody at Berkshire would ever suggest that Amazon isn't something to worry about. How has your relationship with the management team evolved? This would be a hard answer for us to be uh, rational about because we've developed a real fondness for this entire team and have come to know some of their family members and and things they are going through, things we're all going through, right? And and so we just respect how they live their lives, honestly, and the business they built and the glue that they have with one another and just how open and transparent they are. And so now we know we have this investor management dynamic too. So we're all super professional about that. You know, we know we're driving towards something we've articulated together. We want to hold up our end of what we hope to do. We know they want to hold up their end of their goals. So it feels really both professional and very close personally. It's unusual, I'd say, in that way, but not uncommon for us, honestly, across our portfolio. We've invested in a lot of companies and the culture of Partstown is unique in that it's more than a job. Like they are, when you're there at a board meeting and it's five o'clock, like it's not like everyone's rushing to the door and <laughs> headed in their cars. Like they're not satisfied if they don't grow 20%. They're not satisfied if they're not winning. People are so loyal to this team and to this leadership. And I'd say we, it's, I think a, it's one of the really fun things about private equity and that our relationship started more business oriented, but we talked to Steve a couple times a week and it might've been 80% business at the beginning. And now it's 50 and we know his family and he knows ours and it's a special part of that this has obviously been a very good deal and is starting out to be hopefully a very good deal for the new fund. But the beauty of this is that the relationship is going to last far longer than this one deal. What are your key takeaways from this deal? I think the notion of figuring out why you like something and learning along the way about how to apply the new learnings, right? That this Partstown came up on our study of our competitors for the, this other thing we were looking at. And we just said, 
that's a great looking company. Let's chase that down. And and so the notion of sort of always looking beyond to next and taking advantage of stuff you've learned is, is really critical and being focused and targeted on it. Like we could have, instead of like spending as much time with Partstown, Larry, we could have spent a lot of time chasing 20 other things that didn't have the same appeal for us. So it's a little bit of the benefit of focus. And then this commonality of, you know, what we have to offer as a firm is we think, now we're too close to it probably, but we think it's pretty special and connects really well with teams who care, truly care about the nature of their investor and what that partnership is going to look like. And so we need to find companies like that, that for whom that resonates and spend more time with them. So I pulled up the old investment memo from 2016, and we were very clinical on how we thought about Part Sound's growth. We're like, this segment's going to grow at this percent, and this segment's going to grow at this percent, and margins are going to, you know, and that's how we present it to our firm. What we don't often do is good things happen to leading companies, and you can't predict it. And so sometimes we make decisions based on very, like, specific, here's what's going to happen. And then you look after the fact, and you're like, wow, I didn't know they were going to do that. I didn't know (laughs) they were going to get into that space. And so it's just a lesson for us that when you find a special company that has the leadership, it's got the market position, it's got these capabilities, they're not just going to stand pat. They have the ability to succeed on the upside because they're going to go make it happen. We're so constituted by individuals here at the firm who can envision all the ways a company can fail. And we do that so well in our memos. We sometimes miss the, think about all the ways they can be great, right? And so injecting a little bit of balance into that discussion is, uh, is a very important We're thing We're always wrong when we model out these companies. But when I looked at what the earnings were for parts done at the end of 21 versus where it landed, we were two times the earnings that we thought was going to happen. Yeah. Double. All right. So as a closing question, what is your favorite aspect of private equity? The relationship piece of it is, and it's not something I think I totally appreciated coming into it. The fact that we get to work with wonderful people every day that we care about, and I'm in it at this point in my career for the relationships that I enjoy, that I am connected to the CEOs. It's more than just the business side of it. There's a long, like Steve... Kevin and I will be close and friends forever. And so, and I love that, right? Like, obviously, you were in this job to generate returns for investors. And, but the side of it that I don't think I ever appreciated is that a lot of my best relationships are driven from this. I think that's a great answer. It's, and it's tough to dislodge that from my being my first two. This, the other one I would add would be the intellectual charge of attempting to figure out the winners or the future and what's where is society and business going over a many year period. And we get a terrific snapshot of that across our portfolio. And it's really fun. It's really fun to sort of figure out what's this going to look like in 10 years and try and predict that future. And then if we land the investment, then try and make that happen. And that's been very rewarding for us in this relationship building context too. Larry, Kevin, thanks so much for sharing this last chapter of Bartstown and good luck with the next chapter. Thanks, Ted. Appreciate it. Look forward to five years from now. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 